Listen, God has given his word, and he's never changed his opinion, ever. Ever. There's been, never been no update, ever. Did you ever get the updates? Microsoft, you get them. Here's the update. We've fixed the, the bugs and the boo-boos and all the rest, right? God never said, oops. Did you ever say, oops? Oops. No oops. He said what he means, and he means what he says in the only book he ever gave. And I'm here to say it's trustworthy, even on ultimate origins and creation. And we're going to look at that this morning. School is an extension of the family. Get a load of this, moms and dads. It's your responsibility to train your children academically, spiritually. You know that. To help them acquire even a vocation. Train up a child in the way he should go. The old Jewish thought that there's a large extent that meant vocationally as well. You need to train your children to be able to have a vocation to be able to support themselves. Education. So when you send your children to, the, uh, to school, and I'm sorry to say there's a lot of Christian schools that have capitulated and compromised on this issue. They've tried to blend together two worlds and end up with something that totally never was, ever. And you don't know motive. Jesus said you don't know the hearts of men. But there is severe academic pressure that are put on would-be scholars of the Christian community to capitulate what the Bible says in view of what science says. The people that fall down and worship science, it's called scientism. It's not science. Science means truth. And a lot of universities have given up the ghost on this. Not all. Not all. And not all men of science and women of science have given this up. And I know some outstanding astrophysicists and chemists and biologists and men of uh, quantum mechanics and, and whatnot who stand unwaveringly upon the Word of God without sway. It is your responsibility, dad and mom, to examine what it is that your children are learning at the university and school. It's an extension of your work. I would tell my, my boys, namely, if you get in trouble in school, you're in deep trouble. They work for me. And when you get home, you're getting it for me. They need to know that, you see. They're working for dad. It's not an extension of the government. The government wants to co-opt your kids and say they belong to the state. Communism does that, you know. They don't. And they don't belong to the church, so the church helps in the mix. There's family, church, and government, the three institutions of God. And the education of the children and the, and the college, university, is a, res, is a responsibility of the parents. Don't abrogate your responsibility. Take the text. Open it up. and Study it with them. Look at it. and Just don't leave it for them. Do the same thing in the younger grades with our Sunday school class. Read the Sunday school lessons. Teach your children those things. They need to know those things. These things are robbing the hearts and the minds of Christians, young ones that have been raised in Sunday school and youth group, and they go off to the university and they don't even know how to answer these things. And they're overwhelmed with the avalanche of so-called science and, 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 and men and women of high degrees, and so they fall down and bit by bit they darken the church and never go back. It's, 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 we're not building rockets. It's real easy to figure out. If this were not true, I would never be here. I'd never go to church. 
Can you see why people who probably, many of them unsaved, but maybe went to Sunday school, and then they go and hear that, and they go, well, I'm not really sure. I'm out of here. It's a satanic attack, and it's one of his best. Listen, man is the crown. Man, when I say that singularly, mankind, men and women, that is the crown of God's creation. The crown. God made everything, and the last thing he put, man and woman, in this place he made for us. You know that? B.F. Skinner at Harvard wrote a book, Beyond Freedom and Dignity. You know what that meant? B.F. Skinner, who's a psychologist who developed the behavioristic school of psychology, you know, that we're nothing more than Pavlov's dogs. You know, the bell rings and we salivate. We're just behaviorally controlled. It's nurture, it's nurture, not nature, it's nurture, right? Well, we got to get beyond in his book this idea that man is special, beyond freedom, that we have true choice, beyond dignity, and he influenced the culture that we are now seeing the results of that. And God said, I'm not really impressed by that book. In fact, you're not right. You're wrong. Man has dignity and man has worth because you and I bear the image of God, red and yellow, black and white, and all the in-between. We are of one blood and one people called humanity. And that's what God made. From Adam and Eve, all the potential for variation and color and shape and design began at that day. And there was a real man and a real woman, and they really spoke, and he wasn't bent over, half caveman, half ape man, nonsense. And I'll bow down to no one to be accepted. Let God be true and every man a liar. I could care less if no university would hire me. I'll say what it is, and this is what it is. We have been duped as a culture, as a people, and we're talking to ourselves, and we want academic acceptability, and you'll never get the chairman, and you'll never be hired in this department if you're not part of the group here, part of the club. I say, I don't want to be a part of that club. I'd rather stand on the outside and speak a voice for God. I see that all the way through the Word, incidentally. Do you see that? That's right. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. Well, cavemen, yes, ape men, no. Do you know that there's always been the coexistence of advanced men side by side with the primitive? I mean, after, after the flood and all that, do you know that? Always, always. There have always been centers of civilization, development, population growth, and the primitive, those that have been expelled or put out or oppressed, that can barely scratch out a living? I mean, just think of it. 1969, uh, uh, NASA put a man on the moon. Highly technical, highly scientific at the same time. There in Australia, the Aborigines running around in the bush, living in caves and in thickets and all that with blow, blow darts and everything else. Primitive, sophisticated, side by side. It's always been that way. From the flood in the third world of, that we, we now live in. Always been that way. Cave dwelling. Well, cavemen, yes, ape men, no. In our day, you don't have to study uh, science very long before you're introduced to the prehistoric uh, men whose uh, bones have been found. I found one of my early, uh, early science texts. 
And you've all seen this, and this one is, is, is modest by comparison. And you always see this, these different busts that have sort of an ape, sort of in between, and, and there he is, right? Homo sapien sapien, man the wise the wise. And you know what God's opinion is on that? No, no way. And there it is, there he is, and you have this development, right? He's, uh, sometimes they'll show it with uh, eight, seven or eight different stages where there's an ape and he's eventually standing up. Homo erectus, man stands up straight. And then it's in the graphic color and design in, 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 in most science books that I've ever seen. And some uh, even more with colors and all the rest. Well, it's not very long when you study the sciences that you run across this. You should realize this is a direct attack against the teaching of God's Word. And I'm going to call you as a pastor again to think biblically. Run it through the filter of the Word of God. And what do we know that God's Word has said? It's not a book on paleontology. That's the study of bones. It's not a book on geology, a study of, of earth science and all that. It's not a study of anthropology, a study of man. But where it touches on each one of those, God speaks with absolute truth. Absolute truth. Not one jot nor one tittle will ever pass away, Jesus said. Till all of it, till all of it's fulfilled. And the God the Holy Spirit controlled godly men who wrote, and we have faithful and reliable copies of God's inerrant holy word in our hands. So how do we answer this? We, these men are purported to be the missing links whose sketches appear in textbooks. Students everywhere are taught that these are our ancestor, there's Uncle Willie and Aunt Millie. There they are. It's no wonder you're in trouble. No wonder you can't get this stuff. Look at where you came from. You have, uh, you have evolved from animals. That's what I was told when I studied these things at a certain level of my studies in public school. What are we as Christians to think about this? We're to give an answer for every man of the hope that lies within. Is there an answer? Maybe they're right. Maybe you ought to just mix it all together. A lot of Christian schools do that. Horror of horror. We discovered last week our approach should always be we need to be, to, to, uh, to be humble and with prayer search the Scriptures to find the answers to, in this case, this mysterious problem. I'd like to make two biblical observations providing us with God's final opinion on the origin of man. Two observations. We're going to look at cavemen. We're going to look at ape men. For all human beings have a God-given dignity. I don't care if you know math or can tie your shoes or maybe you have Down syndrome or the unborn baby that's going to soon to be destroyed in the womb, they bear the image and likeness of God. There's a dignity and a glory that comes from that. I want us to look at a number of verses. Look at, uh, and you're going to feel like you've got to work on Stay with me. These, uh, and I've written down a lot. We're not going to be able to read a lot. You can study that this week on your own as we come to understand that. But look at Psalm 8, first of all, as we introduce this. This theme, because David writes this glorious psalm, and he makes uh, some statement 
about the value of man, his dignity and honor and value and unique place that you and I occupy as a descendant of our first parents. And Psalm 8.3, when David writes, when I consider your heavens, looking at the stars, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars, which you, Lord, have set in place. I mean, when I look at their grandeur and greatness, what is man? Like, what in the world is man? He seems so small that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him. And then he answers it in verse 5, and it's a difficult translation in the Hebrew. It's sort of, sort of an ellipsis, and uh, some of your Bibles will say you made him a little lower than heavenly beings. See, the word is Elohim there for God. Once or twice, uh, it will refer to the angels in the Old Testament. But this is the way I really think it ought to be translated is what is man that you are mind? What you did make him lack but little of God. That's, and, and that's the way you ought to translate or write that in the margin there for verse 5. Uh, NIV, you made him a little lower than heavenly beings because Elohim is plural. It should be you did make him lack but little of God and crowned him with glory and honor and made him ruler uh, over all things there in Adam. So that's a good way to do it. Leupold uh, translated it that way, and I, I like what he's done with the, with the text. He's exactly right. Well, cavemen first. You might be surprised to learn uh, that our Bible has a lot to say about cavemen. I dare say that most of you aren't aware as to how much. It's an avalanche almost of information about uh, cavemen. If you look at Job chapter 30, uh, the Bible presents the reality of cave dwellers. This is a fact. And in Job 30, verse 1 and following, again, we're turning to the oldest book uh, in the Bible, and Job is telling of cave dwellers. And uh, we would expect uh, this, the oldest book, uh, to tell us, reaching way back through the ions of time, to, uh, to tell us something uh, about this whole, uh, this whole estate, uh, this whole thing of cavemen and cave women. In verse 30, uh, chapter 30, verse 1, Job has uh, been bantering or at least dialoguing with his friends who are absolutely no help. Uh, Job uh, is now looking about him, seeing himself in his, his sorrow and in his pain and in his decrepitness, receiving uh, the disdain of even the lowest forms of human life that were around him, that were mocking him, as he had little idea that he was the focus in this titanic battle between God and Satan. He didn't know it. And in verse 30, chapter 30, verse 1, But now they mock me, Job says, men younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to put with my sheepdogs. I mean, these, this is, these were the low of the low of, the, of, the, of, the, of his day. And of what use was the strength of their hands to me since their vigor had gone out from them? Haggard from want and hunger, they roamed the parched land and desolate wastelands at night. In the brush, they gathered salt herbs. Their food was the root of the broom tree. 
They were banished from their fellow men, shouted at as if they were thieves. They were forced to live in dry river streams among the rocks and in the holes in the ground. They were caves, you see. They brayed among the bushes. They huddled in the undergrowth, a base and nameless brood. They were driven out of the land. And now, and now, Job looks at them. He looks at his own wretched condition. These, the lowest of the low, their sons mock me in song. And I become a byword among them. They detest me and keep their distance. They do not hesitate to spit in my face and so on. There in Job's day, uh, men that he would not even hire to take care of his thousands of livestock because of his decrepitness and the wretched state that he is in, he became the laughing stock and the song of these uh, bottom of society, those that would roam about, scratching out a meager existence. Job uh, is, is talking about just these that lived in holes in the ground, uh, they had been driven out of the, the community and living on the outskirts. These, they could not settle down and plant crops, uh, but they moved about uh, hunting. They couldn't plant crops because they would have been established and provide security and protection, but they weren't. They were driven out, and so they picked the berries and the roots and that kind of a thing, and they moved about hunting game and eating berries. Always, always, always on the verge of starvation, if you will. Always. Well, in B, Genesis 6 through 8, we discover uh, God's uh, judgment upon the earth. And again, we visit Noah's flood. Uh, it was God's flood in which he saved Noah, his wife, three children, their sons, their wives, eight human beings, and two of every kind of land-dwelling, air-breathing, land-dwelling animal uh, was brought by God. And Noah did not collect them. They were brought by God into this enormous floating barge and preserved as God judged the whole world. And only eight human beings were saved at that horrendous time, millions of people were drowned in this flood of judgment because of their godless wickedness. And God said in chapter 6 that I repent that I had even made man. But Noah found grace. And in chapter 6, we see the building of it. In 7, we see the flood itself. And... Uh, and then we see in chapter 8, uh, God had said that it was time for them after a year-long flood where the fountains of the deep were broken up and the vapor barrier invisible to the eye that kept a greenhouse effect on the earth, uh, kept the ultraviolet rays to a minimum, allowed the longevity of life, that in the strong genetic pool, uh, was collapsed, and after a year, they came out into a world that was completely different. Completely different. And they took seven of clean animals, uh, some of them to offer a sacrifice at the end, and we see that uh, when, in the end of chapter 8 when Noah builds an altar to the Lord. 
and some of the other clean animals were eaten by the eight human beings while they were in the ark. And God probably gave, the text doesn't say, a great hibernation to the animals. And they all left the ark, and in chapter 9, God established the covenant with Noah, a new blessing. He recommits the commission, be fruitful now and fill the earth in a warning of um, uh, now you can be a carnivorer, you can have a hamburger, uh, and man becomes a carnivorer, a uh, uh, con, whatever it is at this point, I can't say it. Uh, what? Thank you very much. Carnivore. I knew it when I came up here, but it's funny, your tongue gets a little funny. Uh, and, but no one should ever take the life of a human being who's different in 9 6 is the, is the foundation stone for capital punishment. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God, God made man. So what can we say in, in B? Genesis 6 through 8, the flood ended with only eight human beings. Only eight. Every one of us have descended from Noah and his wife. You see, Adam and Eve began and went to millions Wiped out, now you have eight. Actually, Noah and his wife they had three sons. Actually, we come from three pairs, his sons. And it has filled the entire world. And, and, and probably the flood was recent, and I, I would guess maybe 6,000 years ago, 5,000, 6,000 years ago, probably at the max. And it's amazing when you think about it. I've studied ancient history, going to the University Archaeological Museum, U of Penn, and seen Sir Leonard Ramsey's excavation at Sumer, considered to be there in the Middle East, the oldest civilization. And we have found, not we, I wasn't there, but I've seen the tablets of the school children doing their math assignments, their grocery. They take a piece of clay, and they're writing on cuneiform, and <laughs> they smudge it out, and they do their math, and they smudge it out, and there's the, I've seen the, the formula for making beer, the, the barley and all that. They flip it over on the other. Man appears around 4,000 B.C., out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. Here he appears. The oldest civilization. 4,000 B.C. Do you count that? That's like 6,000 years ago? Not millions or billions like our government spends. Billion. What is that? I don't even know. I don't even know what a million is, right? You know, we put in years, we kind of like, we're not good at math anyway, most of it. We got, oh, there's zero. I guess a bunch of zeros there. No. Don't be duped. A man appears writing and speaking on the scene. Just yesterday. You know, when they went to the moon, talking about the, the early earth, they went to the moon. I remember I was studying. I was caught up in that. When you're in the 60s, I wanted to be an astronaut, you know. <laughs> John Glenn and, and uh, all the guys, right? Carpenter and Shepard. And, and they thought when the module was coming, going to land on the moon for the first time, oh, no, will it sink into all this Lunar dust that has settled over eons of time. I remember that discussion. And they only discussed that one time. And that's when the first one went down. 
with Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong. And lo and behold, you know what they found? Not even six inches of lunar dust. And it shouted, we haven't been here that long. And when you go to the bottom of the ocean, you know, we know what the settling rate of, of uh, particles are. I see it in our pool. I have to vacuum it every few weeks. There it is. They're going down. Okay, I got the idea. The oceans did the same thing. You're like, whoa, the bottom of the oceans, millions of years, right? It's got to be, you know, sludge and dirt. Almost the same th message that comes from the... We have not been here that long. It's only a little bit. Everything around us shouts to us, made by God. Everything shouts to us, you've not been here that long. Everything for he who has an eye to see. But man loves his sin, and he hates God that he knows. So he X's God out, comes up with this nonsense, and sort of helps him get along so he can sin it up and do what he wants. And anyway, the Bible says when Man rejects the God that he knows, and everyone who's ever born is aware of God. What he does is he debases himself because he then not looks up, but he looks down to the animal world to find the way that he ought to live and behave. And you've heard it, man is an animal, right? And if he's an animal, he's not really that important. He's expendable. And there are certain animals that are stronger. You know, Nazism, the basis of that was evolution, that there's a sort of super race and super ability, and we can expunge the rest, and there really is no right and wrong. And when he stops looking up and he looks down, you ever look at the animal kingdom? Have you looked at it, really? When you go to the zoo, you ought to be thankful that some of those creatures are behind bars. Some people forget. They stick their head in lions, and sometimes they have an accident. They're not pets. Do you read about that lady that had a chimpanzees for a pet? When was that? Last year? Two years ago? She had a little pet. What's the matter with people? You know, it's an animal. They're wild. They're instinctive. And she had her friend there, and her chimpanzee went into a rage of sorts, and ripped the face off of her friends, ripped the hands off that woman, and she died horribly. An animal. An animal. And if you look at creation, if you look at the animal world, if you take a close look, have you ever seen the beautiful safaris there in Engedi in Africa? Here's the message. If you limp, you're lunch. And they don't feel badly about it. They don't have a conscience. They're not made in God's image. And they never were, ever. You are. And God expects a whole lot more from you and from me. That's the teaching of the Bible. That's what the men and women of God through the centuries of time knew and embraced until the last 150 years where Sat Satan has had a heyday in confusing and duping the minds of men and women and thousands upon thousands of students. And hell will be filled with many of them that went never any further. Well, if I can't trust Genesis, if I can't trust God's Word, then how, can I, how do I know that any of the rest of it is right? 
and I guess I don't need Jesus, and then I take a comparative religion class, and I guess everything leads to heaven if there is a heaven. And John Lennon sings, imagine if there is no heaven. Horror of horrors. Wow. Well, a thousand years, and B1, a thousand years, uh, let me... Uh, Let me read B. Genesis 6, 8, the flood ended with only eight human beings, and from these eight God brought forth the human distribution of all mankind. So we're all sort of kissing cousins. Did you know that? Don't underline kissing. Thank you. A thousand years or so after the flood, God linguistically divided the human race at Babel. Remember that in Genesis 11, 1 to 9, causing people to separate and isolate in pockets that cause people to start looking differently from one another by inbreeding within a common gene pool. Genesis chapter 11, Babel, never forget that. It's after the flood. God had said, spread out. Man said, "Uh, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to build a city. We're going to build a tower, a tower that goes all the way up in the heavens, And if you read it in the Hebrew, it's the idea like we're going to build it high enough so if God judges the world again with a flood, we're going to go up on top and we'll survive. God says, I see what you're doing, and I have an answer for that. And all of a sudden, everyone went to work that day, and they all started speaking different languages. And they found out who's speaking English and who's speaking this and who's speaking that, and they ended up being together, and then they divided that way. God divided all the humanity into common linguistic groups. And then within those groups, and incidentally, the UN to this day, if you look at them with the headsets on, is a testimony of the truthfulness of Genesis chapter 11. And then those of common language groups gathered together and moved out to do what God had said, move out and fulfill the earth. And in their pockets to where they went, they began to have children, and their children had children, and it was the isolation within that community of certain gene pool, genes that became predominant, skin color, eyes, hairs, height, all of that, and breeding within the common language groups. And, and certain characteristics of that community, uh, common community, became prominent. And that's how we have the natural variety uh, of all human beings that ever, have ever been. All of them. There is one blood between all men and women who have ever been. One blood. And if you struggle with a certain sort of egotistical, I'm of this line, then ask God to forgive you. Because there is, in the variation of the gene pool, the variety for recessive and dominant genes, and given the right combinations in an isolated community, certain ones will be predominant, and that's what we have. And once there's interbreeding between all of those, I remember when Admiral Perry sailed into Japan, 1900 or whatever it was, the little Japanese were yay high, they all had certain color skin and there were certain eyes and features, but that is all changing today, have you noticed? Now the Japanese are going all around the world, they're not an isolated pocket anymore, 
they're bigger, they're eating a Western diet, it's just not rice, it's meat and all the rest. And uh, they're one, one race, one people, one blood, and that's where it all came from. Think biblically. Think biblically. And during this time, and it's always been this way in a depraved fallen world, stronger elements in society force out the weaker people. That's what we had in Job 30. People that subsist on the land for food and protection, eating berries and hunting game and and, uh, living uh, in caves, driven from society. Part of our problem is, is that we as Americans can little understand how the rest of the world lives and has lived. We think, don't all people live in houses and neighborhoods like we live in? No. There are exceptions, of course, but no. We live in a world where more than half the world, get this, more than half the world has never made a phone call. You say, wow, wow. And we get slap happy and sloppy in our thinking and just assume, isn't, it, isn't this the way it's always been? And isn't this the way it is? It's not. So it's hard for us to imagine. That's half our problem. That's what causes us to get complacent. And that opens the door to all kinds of problems. Did you know, see, that some of the greatest saints of God were cavemen? Did you know that? Some of the greatest saints of God or cavemen. Take your Bible. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrew 11 is, uh, is uh, heaven's hall of faith fame. These were men and women of great faith. And it uh, gives a whole listing there. Uh, or it's, it's an edited list, of course. But, uh, but it has kind of a time sequence to it. You know, he talks about uh, the earliest of our parents, Abel. And uh, works through uh, Noah and Abraham and gets down to Moses and Joseph, men and women of faith, godly men. But, but don't ever stop reading that chapter. Get to verses 37 and 38. Well, back it up to verse 35. Some of these uh, great men and women of faith, women received back their dead, raised to life again. And look at this. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they may gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put into prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two, probably Isaiah. They were put to death by sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskin, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. And they wandered in deserts and in mountains, and here it is, and in the caves and in holes in the ground. They were all commended for their faith, yet not one of them received what had been promised. That was the promise of the coming of God's Son. They died before, you see. But God had planned something better for us, the author writes here, uh, to those that were his readers. Well, these are men and women, godly men and women, who were hunted down and persecuted 
And that hasn't stopped. You know that more Christians, I'm told, have been martyred in the last 50 years than in the centuries prior. Little do we know what really goes on in China, which is probably home to the greatest church of our day. It's estimated that there are 50 million godly people in China. You see, the light, though it may be being extinguished here in the West of the truth of the gospel, God has set it aflame in other parts of the world. Uh, South Korea has an incredible church. When I was doing my doctoral studies at Westminster, one out of every three students was a, was a Korean. And I'm telling you, they are bright people if you've got to compete with them for classroom grades. Sharp people. Brazil, a great emerging Christian church. Even while the light is all but extinguished in Western Europe and quickly flaming out, God forbid, I pray it doesn't, but here in the West, in the United States. There are other places where God is at work. Did you know that uh, 1 Samuel 22-24, to one of the greatest men of all times, was a cave dweller? Did you know that? His name was David. Did you know that David was a cave dweller? Not just for a night or two. I'll go on a camping trip. We'll stay in a, a cave. We'll go splunking or something. No, he was on the lamb. And in the Judean hills, uh, which has hundreds and thousands of caves, he dwelt in them. While the maniac of King Saul, in, in complete envy of David, trying to kill him, hunted him and hunted him with his army and chased him for years. Years he chased him. He was on the lamb. And so David stayed in caves. Did you know we have in our Bible two caveman psalms? Did you know that? Look at, uh, if you will, at the psalm, Psalm 57. David wrote Psalm 57 while in a cave. Psalm 142 is the other one. Look at the uh, title of the psalm at the very beginning. My Bible says Psalm 57, right under it, for the director of music to the tune, Do Not Destroy, of David. He's the writer. And here's the occasion when he had fled from Saul into the cave. It was a caveman psalm. You see, whenever conditions are so bad... If people are driven away from the mainstream of society or they're hunted or persecuted or conditions otherwise are so terrible, people flee to the underground or to the caves for safety and protection. It's always been that way, always. And here's one of the greatest men who ever lived writing uh, this psalm while in a cave. Have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me, for in you... My soul takes refuge. Verse 2, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. And he calls on God to help him, to give him a song. And he expresses his trust in God to deliver him. It's a caveman psalm, a cave dweller psalm. And then look at 142. It's the second saddest psalm in the Psalter, if you will, only exceeded by Psalm 88. Here, again, look at the title, Psalm 142. It's of David. David wrote it when he was in the, when he was in the cave. 
and it's a prayer, and he's calling out to God for help uh, as he writes this caveman psalm. I'm telling you, it's amazing. It's amazing how much our Bible has to teach us about cavemen and cave dwellers and the reason for that. Here David is at the cave of Adullam. This cave is so enormous that he and his 600 men, I want to tell you these were real men. You wouldn't want to meet them in battle. They'd slice and dice you and it would be over very quickly. These were mighty men. You've heard of the 300? This is nothing. They were nothing compared to David's 600 men. And they're all in this cave, and David's in there. And lo and behold, how about that? In walks the king. They didn't have modern toilets that day. I appreciate that on the interstates. Every 30 miles, they have a rest stop. And the king needed a rest stop. And he went in there to do his business. I mean, could a man be any more vulnerable, say maybe sleeping? No, I think it's worse when your drawer's down around your ankles. And the men said to David, God has heard your prayers, and you can kill the king. Look at him over there. And they're in the back of the cave. This is the day the Lord hath made. And we learn something about David here. He would not touch the Lord's anointed. He had to leave him for God to deal with. But he would let Saul know that he was in there, and he didn't harm him when he could have harmed him. Wow, what a story. What drama. We're going to look at David more later. Caves all over Judea. I've stood right near the caves, cave number four, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. They're in pottery jars hidden centuries ago. Well, did you know that the greatest one who ever lived was a cave dweller? How about that? That should end all discussion about cavemen and cave dwellers. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Let me say one other thing about David. I I can't pass on, and then we'll mention the Lord Jesus. Do you know that David was at his absolute best when he was in desperate need? Isn't that a warning for all of us, so to speak? It's a warning for us. David was on the lamb being chased, didn't know if he lived from day to day, didn't know about his meals, didn't know all that. And he was godly, so godly. But flip a few years ahead when he's in the palace and he's filled with complacency, he had everything he wanted, wine, women, and song, and he's completely vulnerable, and he ruins his life and his family, and he would never be the same in his prosperity. And I've said before how many times the danger of prosperity. Be careful. I think Swindoll is right. For a hundred that can survive and be godly with adversity, only one can with prosperity. Be careful. And we live like kings here. Say, well, I don't have that much. You live like a king. You do, and so do I. Be careful. Well, the greatest one who ever lived... The Lord Jesus Christ was a cave dweller. He was born in a cave. Did you know that at Bethlehem? Hate to mess that up. You all have little nativity scenes and oh, isn't it cute? No, it was a cave. And if it was the right cave, and I've stood in it, I've seen people kiss it and hug it and all the rest. Vicki, you were there. And we've been there several times there in Bethlehem. If it's where the church of the nativity was built over, a cave. And 
He was driven out of his hometown. They tried to kill him in Nazareth. How about that? Tried to push him over the precipice. He once said, looking back over his life and summarizing it, what did he say in Luke 9, 58? Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. There on the Mount of Olives outside the city of Jerusalem, you read that in the last week he lived, he was in the temple teaching, and then he left. It's believed he went across with the disciples, across the Kidron Valley, and stayed and slept in the caves uh, during the night. He had friends in Bethany with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, but spent many times under the stars and in the caves. Isaiah, and, and one final thought, Isaiah chapter 2. We discover in this text, look at Isaiah 2, looking forward to the very last days. And if you know Christ the Lord is a Savior, don't believe you'll be here. I believe in a premillennial, pre-trib. You may not. You're entitled to your heresy. I believe that the church is unique. God will once again deal with national, political, ethnic Israel. Romans 9, 10, and 11, particularly 11. And he writes here of that final terrible day of trans-tribulation, and it's horrible. And you don't want to be here, and God is speaking through Isaiah's pen of that terrible seven-year period of time that will take place, if I'm right, after the rapture of the church, and we'll be in heaven before the judgment seat of Christ. But look at Isaiah chapter 2, verse 10. God is speaking. He says, Go into the rocks, hide in the ground, for the dread of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty and the eyes of the arrogant man will be humbled and the pride of men will be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted. They will be humbled Look at verse 17. The arrogance of man will be brought low, and the pride of men will be humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day, and the idols will be totally disappear. Verse 19. Men will flee to the caves, in the rocks, to the holes in the ground, from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty, when He rises to shake the earth. And in that day, circle that, Men will throw away the rodents and the bats. Those are creatures that live in caves. And their idols of silver and gold, which they made to worship. And they will flee to the caverns and the rock and, and to the overhanging crags from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty when He rises to shake the earth. So stop trusting in man who has but a breath in his nostrils. Of what account is he? And that's the same day, uh, the, the same day John is referring to in, in Revelation chapter 6, verses 15, 16, and 17. And so I take by that at the world's end, there will be more cave dwellers than that there have ever been at any time in human history in that during that terrible, terrible day. You know, my professor, uh, John Wickham, did you know that he was a cave dweller by his own testimony? Some of you have heard him, him lecture. I had him come years ago when he was still doing that. He was a part of uh, uh, the United States Army in World War II in December, in his own words, in 1944. 
He was a part of those being attacked by the Nazi counteroffensive there at the Battle of the Bulge in the freezing tundra uh, in which 19,000 GIs were killed in that frozen environment, that pincer attack as they made one last attempt to counter the... uh, the, uh, our armies that were coming across Europe headed toward to, uh, to Berlin. And he said, in that day, if you didn't find a hole in the ground, namely some basement and some abandoned house, you were a statistic. He stumbled upon a barn that there were frozen bodies of GIs stacked up that didn't find a place and couldn't dig into the ground when conditions were that bad. You find a hole in the ground or you die. Or you die. And he found one. You know, in the 60s, with the, uh, the rise of atomic weaponry and the fear that the Soviet Union uh, would have weapons and it would be all over, all across America and in school, they made holes in the ground called bomb shelters that you could survive Uh, In case of attack, you crawled into the ground if conditions were ever to get that bad. And I remember air raid drills in my elementary school where we didn't get into the ground, though they had a bomb shelter in my elementary school. I went down and saw the little place and the food and the canned food and the peanut butter that I, no thank you. We got under our desk like that's going to solve the problem with the air raid drill. But we did. Can you imagine that? You crawl into a hole in the ground when conditions are ever that bad. Ever that bad. So God is saying, if you're not saved and you're going to be a part of that last seven-year period of time, go buy some cave land right now. You're going to need it if you're going to survive that terrible, terrible time. Well, amazingly, the Bible has a lot to say about cavemen. A lot. But there's a second biblical observation providing us with God's final opinion on the origin of man, and that is ape men. The Bible forbids the possibility of such a creature. He or she never existed except in the the mind between the ears of some artist that gave some sort of rendering that ends up being copied for decades in school books and and made into uh, images as if it's the gospel truth. You see, the reason is that there's an infinite, infinite distance, infinite, without end, distance between cavemen and ape men. Cavemen, yes. Ape men, never, never existed. Again, it's satanic deception. Homo sapiens, sapien, man the wise, the smart, the smart, No way. A, God told us uh, that he has set barriers uh, in reproduction. And in Genesis chapter 1, as if to say it, as if anticipating our day of gross unbelief and denial of God's word over and over and over again. In Genesis 1, I have it on your sheet, verse 21, verse 24, verse 25. I mean, how many times does God have to say it? I set all the boundaries. I set all of them in the the genetic code, that you may reproduce, but it's only ever after your kind. That's it. Darwin notwithstanding. Oh, incidentally, do you know that Darwin was not a scientist? Did you know that? Most people don't know that. 
Now, he was married to a very godly woman. Did you know that much? He was. Do you know that he lost at either 9 or 11? I remember his young daughter died, and he never got over it. Darwin was not a scientist. I'm sorry to tell you, he was a divinity student. He studied theology. That was it. And he promoted this natural selection that through mutations, new forms, and transitional forms came about, but it never happened. We know today through science that a mutation is a prescription for extinction. We have uh, killed so many fruit flies and have discovered that through all the mutants, they're either A, sterile, they cannot reproduce because God has set the boundaries there, or they die very young. They don't live. Mutation is a prescription to death, not to alternate and higher life forms, which are embraced by faith to those that reject the biblical record. God has set the boundaries. Do you know that? God has set the boundaries, all the boundaries. I keep saying that in life, all of them. Have you ever wondered why there are only two sexes? If we came from pond scum, from inorganic life, and here we are, voila, why are there two flavors? Why not a thousand flavors? Why not one? How is that? Incredible. Aren't we lucky? No way. God sets all the boundaries, all of them, and we're exactly where we need to be in the universe, exactly, for heat and cold. You know the other planets wobble like a top. Do you know that? They wobble, get dizzy. You go to Hershey Park, oh, I get dizzy. God placed the moon right there at 23.4 degrees. The earth is tilted on its axe, and it's completely stable. You think that's an accident? It's God's wonderful design. The earth has 21% oxygen, just what we need. It's perfect. 78% nitrogen. Uh, air pressure at sea level is 14.6 pounds per square inch. If, if it was much more, it's too much. You go down deep in water, oh, it's so deep. It's so perfect. Perfect. It's perfect. This geotherm, earth, perfect. God sets all the boundaries of your life and mine, if you know him, all of them. And kinds only beget kinds, and there's nothing in between. But more than that, since Genesis 3, life is always downward. It's not upward. It's not getting better. It's going down. There's such things as second law of thermodynamics. Some of you have heard of that. That is, that things grow not more special, more unique, more wonderful, going up, you see. They're going downward. Now you say, well, I still don't understand. What is this entropy and all that? That's part of the second law of thermodynamics. I got an experiment for you. Just don't cut your grass all summer. And you will see total and utter disorder. And your neighbors, well, they'll have some things to say to you probably too that you probably don't want to hear. Just let it go on for a year or two or three. And you'll see what you have there. I have news for you. It won't be Kentucky bluegrass everywhere. You'll be growing things little did you imagine could grow in your yard. Disorder. You have to apply energy to keep it unique. 
It's downward. It's towards death. It's towards extinction. If Adam came back now and he looked, I said that, I think last week, went to the zoo, he'd say, where are all the animals? This is it? Noah would say, where are they all? You go to the museum, you discover so many varieties and forms have been hunted to death, fell into extinction, or died off, and were a shadow but what once was. Get the right view and think biblically. So you can't have on your sheet, an ape becoming something else. It would need new genetic information in its DNA, and it's not happening. B, let's ask this question. If humans have been evolving for, from apes for hundreds of thousands of years, now that's commonly taught as if it's two and two is four. If they've been evolving for this period of time, let's ask the question, where are all the missing links? If man's existence is one million years old. You know, it's sheer numbers. Again, we're not too many of us good at numbers. But how about this for size? If we've been here for, for, for hundreds of thousands and even a million years, do you know the number of human beings, just assuming the most conservative reproduction rate, that there would be more people than there are electrons in the whole universe? It's a number 10 to the power that I can't even imagine what it is. And there would be more people than that. Let's put it this way. Some have figured it out that people would fill the entire solar system. Now, that's a pretty big number, isn't it? If we have been here that long. It's enormous. And it never happened. But, on your sheet... We have six, about 6 billion people now. Again, that's a B word, billion. You know that's the exact number you would expect. If uh, Noah and his sons and their wives left the ark six or 6,500 years ago, 6,000 or 16, do you know that that's about, the, that's about the right number given wars and disease and abortions and, and all the rest with a conservative reproduction? That's about the number you would expect? Do you know that? Let me put it another way. You know, six billion is really not a large number of people. I know Malthus and, oh, we're going to run out of food and all this. Not, that's crazy. That's crazy. Do you know that uh, I think the largest city in, the, in America, because they made the county the city, is Jacksonville, Florida. Did you know that? And those that figure out space and volume and all that in numbers, do you know, get this, now just think about this. You could take the whole world's population, 6 billion, and you could stand them all upright in Jacksonville, Florida. That's amazing, isn't it? That's amazing. Now, you couldn't go to the bathroom. And if you forgot something, you know, too bad you're standing here like this. But the whole world's present population fit there. So it's not really as, as an amazing number as it may sound. And it's just about the right number of our recent creation and our recent flood and everything else all fits with that. Do you see? Think biblically. And don't be duped. The genuine debate, debatable, and here, get this, see, the genuine debatable fossils 
You know, so well, where are these missing links and where are the fossils? The genuine debatable fossils, and there are not millions of them, and that's the way it ought to be. If all these are transitioning from, from the primitive primates to here we are, Homo sapien, then most all the fossils we found should be sort of in between, right? And there ought to be millions of them. Not so. Not so. Do you know that the debatable fossils, now get this, the debatable fossils for this whole thing, you could lay them on this platform right here. That's it. Not millions, a couple of dozen that are debatable, and yet not one of them hold up. Let me put it another way. You could put all the debatable fossils that this whole charade and myth is built upon into one human coffin. Oh, that may surprise you. And it angers me, frankly. You know, there is a righteous anger when you see it robbing the hearts and souls of people and robbing them of their Bibles and emptying true churches through the nonsense that's promulgated as truth. It angers me, really. And that's it. And that's the story. Well, what about uh, some of these? I have on your sheet a couple of them. Uh, how about the pill-down man? You know, you'll see pictures of the pill-down man. Let me tell you about the pill-down man. Reconstructions of the pill-down man were based on a skull, skull fragments found in a pit at Pilldown in East Sussex, England. That's southern England. They found part of a skull. And for 40 years, this find was used as the classic proof that man evolved from ape-like animals. It was not till 1940s it was proven that the Piltdown man was an entire hoax. It proves again, if you go out looking for something, you'll find it. And if not, you'll make it. Don't ever be surprised. You see, a, a human skull was found by students, and they stained it to make it look ancient. And then they found some teeth as they were digging, and they took them, and they filed them down. Because it was uh, years later, upon close inspection, they found iron filings in the teeth. And they thought, well... You know, they didn't have dentists then. And they discovered it was a hoax. And then they reburied it. And it was a hoax. A couple of teeth in an in, in a, a, a uh, human skull made to look very ancient. And it was purported to be, and it robbed a generation of people, maybe. Here's the missing link. Never happened. Never, ever happened. It's a hoax. And yet, school books are slow, aren't they? They carry on the same images and pictures years later, after the 40s, when this is discovered, this never happened. And it continues, I would dare say, in some school books today. How about Nebraska Man? Nebraska Man. They play good football out there, but this guy didn't. Soon after its discovery, the Nebraska Man was officially designated as the missing link. You should know 
that uh, he was discovered right around the time of the Scopes Monkey Trial in Dayton, Tennessee. When Clarence Dale, uh, Darrell, the defense attorney, uh, ridiculed Bible-believing Christians and biblical origins, and Williams Jennings Bryant, the eloquent man who died right after the trial, brilliant, eloquent Bible teacher of the Word, and Darrell held up the Nebraska man as being the missing link, and that finally we're going to come around and see that we really descended from monkeys. Well, a vivid recon, uh, reconstruction was commissioned based on the only evidence. You know what they found? It was based on a single tooth found in Nebraska, and he had a few supposed tools that were near him. And later excavations uncovered some of the rest of remains, but here it is. Years later, as we've come to understand now through real science, the tooth was not that of an animal-like man or even of an ape. It was of an, of an extinct pig, which Daryl made a laughing stock, and liberal newspapers picked up, and school children and Bible weavers everywhere were crushed. Could this be so? Turned out to be absolute and total nonsense. The tooth was not that of an animal like man or even an ape, it was actually a type of a wild pig. Currently, that pig, it is not extinct, lives in Paraguay. And that was the end of Nebraska man. What about Neanderthal man? You hear about Neanderthal man as if that's the, the final. I know sometimes a woman will say to her grunting husband, you're a Neanderthal, like you're sort of an ape man, caveman, right? Neanderthal man was discovered in western Germany. For many years, scientists accepted Neanderthal man as the subhuman missing link. Hundreds of museums and textbooks promoted it as such. And the sad truth is that Neanderthals were 100% human all the way. They were similar to Northwest Europeans. The Neanderthal brain capacity was larger than most of ours. Uh, they were strongly built, robust people. But uh, the Neanderthal people generally suffered from various debilitating diseases, which left disfigurement in their bones. And it has been discovered that though the one they found was a large cranium bent over, he was very aged. He lived... Uh, uh, longer than, far longer than uh, most of our human lifespans, maybe into the well into the hundreds. But he was discovered, guess what he had? It's what you're going to have if you live long enough, if my doctor's right. Where he said, everyone who lives long enough, guess what? Arthritis, osteoarthritis. And it was discovered that Neanderthal was human and that he was bent over because he had osteoarthritis. He was not an ape. One more. What about uh, the P, uh, Java man, 1894? I love this guy because I love saying his name. It's so much fun. Pithecanthropus erectus. <laughs> Pithecanthropus. Say that a few times and people think you got a, you're educated, you know. <laughs> Peking man, same thing. They found the top of his skull and his thigh. One came from an animal. The part, the little fragment came from a human being. There is an infinite gap between animals 
and mankind. And all of the remains of the missing pieces, as I said, could be filled in one little box, even the size of a coffin. That's it. God's message to ever for us is, what is man that thou art mindful of? I have made you lack but little of God. You are made in the likeness of God. You are special. And that gulf between animal and man will never be bridged, as God will never call an animal to give account why he ate another animal for lunch. But he will call us. They are instinctively driven by God. Birds fly south, not because they go to aviational school and learn they better go there. They don't. God has programmed their puny minds to do that. It's amazing. It's amazing. But God has made you and I something unique and special, and every one of you are that way. And we're all human and priceless in God's eyes. Never forget it. Never. Never. Well, lessons for our life, and we're done. Number one. Number one, when in doubt, always take God at his word. It alone is trustworthy. Always, always, always take God at his word. I don't care what kind of academic pressure or societal pressure or cultural pressure. And there is. This is Satan's world. He's the God of the air. Resist it. Let God be true and every man a liar. So what if they laugh and mock at you? So what? Don't capitulate. This is where I stand like Luther. I can do no else. And if you can't get the chair in the department or they won't hire you because of it, then God has something better for you to do. Don't, don't trade away the Bible. Don't trade it away. And parents, sit down and look through the text and funnel it through the teaching of God's Word. For man's ideas are not God's ideas always. Man is a rebel and he hates God and he runs from God. And he needs a savior. And he devises all these systems of thought so he can live like an animal. He can sleep with anyone he wants. He can, he can kill and genocide and wipe out if he wants. He can do anything he wants to try and live with himself. But at the end of the day, he knows he is not an animal. And he is going to give an account as all of us. Number two, you as a human being are unique. You are special. You're not a cosmic accident. You're more valuable than any stars or moon who have never breathed and never lived. You are unique, special. You are made in God's wonderful likeness. God doesn't make trash. You're a treasure. Just because you can't do math as well as someone else, just because you can't run as fast or swim as fast or throw the football or shoot the hoop or, or whatever else, or you're not as tall or this or that, who cares? You, you are specially made by God. Number three, get this down. There's no scientific proof that modern man is evolving or has ever evolved. The truth, as I said, is just the opposite. We are at the end of the genetic dragnet, if you will, with the inherited diseases that proliferate. We are so much less 
than what God originally made. That's the right biblical perspective. That's reality. Number four, only man will ever give an account to God. No animal ever will. You will. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. As Christ reviews our life and what we did with the gifts and the resources he gave and the greatest resource of all is time. What did you do for me? And number five and last, here's the greatest indicator of the uniqueness of men and women. If you needed anything else, this is all you need. For when God sent his son, he went right past Andromeda and Mars. Do you notice? Venus passed all of them. And he came to only one place. And it forever made that place special and unique. And he only became a human being in the womb of Mary. That he might come and live as us and die perfect, the perfect sacrifice that you might be saved and made acceptable to holy God. But you must receive him as your Savior for heaven to be yours. Whether young or old, it is the message that saves. It's the gospel. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about him. He's creator. He's sustainer. He's redeemer. One who once dwelt in a cave was born in a cave. And so at the end of the matter, I say again, cavemen, yes. When conditions get so bad, driven to caves. Ape men never happen, never will happen, ever. And that's God's final word on the subject. Come next week, we're going to study more about creation, look at day age and gap theory and some of these things and try and understand what God says. Let's stand and be dismissed.